coming up this week on the Single Seater Space podcast. Aston Martin will be looking back at Nightside as this is a race that got away from them. As our colleague Martin Brunder would say, Award was a day late and a dollar short with that one. Remember, you can find all of our content on our website, singleseaterspace.co.uk and on our social media using the at singleseaterspace. Enjoy! Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the Single Seater Space podcast. After one of the craziest weekends of racing we can remember for quite some time, Monaco delivered, the Indy 500 was awesome and uh, underneath all of that um, we have lots to dive into. Lots of different storylines over the course of the weekend um, from Monaco qualifying all the way to the final two and a half miles of the Indianapolis 500 and we'll preview three different forms of motorsport this weekend coming up as well. Uh, I'm James Scott, IndyCar um, reporter for Single Seater Space. Joining me once again is Taryn Glazebrook, Formula E and Formula One expert in Single Seater Space's team. And uh, Taryn, if we start with the Monaco Grand Prix then, uh, safe to say that for the first time in a little while, the Principality delivered some drama. Yeah, we finally saw some decent racing. We were all really pessimistic coming into the Monaco Grand Prix weekend. We thought we were going to see the best train exhibition, uh, James's words from last week. But we saw overtakes. We saw more overtakes here than at Baku. This is like this is Monaco. Baku is has straights. Baku has heavy braking zones. Monaco is the narrowest track on planet Earth, especially with these current F1 cars, compared to them at least. And we saw overtakes, at, especially around Mirabeau. Mirabeau was a hot zone. Um, drivers making mistakes into the Nouveau Chicane was a big talking point. We'll get onto that a bit later. But I think the other thing that made it so brilliant was the, the, str- the strategic viewpoint of the race. You had that kind of threat of rain, and that kind of made the race so intriguing. And I think, I actually think the Monaco Grand Prix was maybe not the best race weekend of the year, but probably, no, it was the best race weekend of the year, but probably the second best race of the year, if that makes sense. Yeah, I certainly think that in terms of actual excitement and enjoyment, I think this one was probably the best that I've had because after qualifying um, delivered, I mean, we had Verstappen and Alonso on the front row, but that doesn't really tell you the full story um, of you know what happened over the course of that Saturday afternoon. I mean, Perez stuck it in the wall in Q1, ended up starting last, and then um, we had an awesome three-way shootout for pole that I think was decided by less than a tenth, and Max Verstappen came out with one of the sec- best sector threes you've ever seen. Putting, I mean, you could put a piece of paper between his car and the walls in uh, uh, both parts of the swimming pool as he was looking to extract every single ounce of time from that car uh, and did so. And yeah, we talk about the strategic element, you know, often with Formula One races, we are quite sceptical when they say, oh, there'll be rain in X number of laps and it's quite a long way away. And you can kind of see dark clouds in the distance. That's when you kind of know that a race is slowly unraveling. Um, I think it was the Spanish Grand Prix in 2000 and. 2020 maybe where they were they were focusing in on the clouds in the background rather than the action on the track and at that point you know that perhaps a race is not um it's thrilling best but actually the rain did come and perhaps a bit heavier than uh, than people anticipated and um it certainly made for crazy strategy the big winner looked to be George Russell 
who had been on the same strategy as uh, Fernando Alonso in starting on the hard compound tyre and going long. Um, Ferrari also tried that, but uh, then they got their knickers in a twist and messed it all up um, when Carlos Sainz tried to overcut Pierre Gasly um, and they were nearly undercut by uh, Lewis Hamilton. So we'll get on to Ferrari in a little bit. But yes, the rain then came and um, Max Verstappen was able to take advantage. Um, Fernando Alonso's team made a bold call uh, in terms of their pit stops, it was turned out not to be the right one. Were you shocked when Aston Martin put dry tyres on Fernando Alonso just as the rain was coming? Or did you think, look, it's not going to be strong enough and with that extra grip, he might actually be quicker? Yeah, I think Martin was saying, if the rain is only going to come in between turns three and turns six or seven, whilst the rest of the track is dry, then slicks were the best idea. But honestly, just looking back at it, Aston Martin made a pure blunder. They uh, they did uh, as what I like to call a Ferrari strategist move. It was re- it was really upsetting to see because had it not happened, who knows? We could have seen Fernando Alonso versus Max Verstappen around Monaco, uh, and that would have been an absolute treat to watch. But um, yeah, I, d- I definitely think uh, Aston Martin will be looking back in hindsight as uh, this is a race that got away from them because. The fact Max Verstappen won it by about 27 seconds, basically almost half a minute, it doesn't show the true story of um, what happened this weekend. Uh, just Red Bull. Red Bull had that thing where if if you're leading the race, it is such a big advantage, especially in these sort of situations where um, you, have, you, you make your opposition blink first, if you get what I mean. Like... It, it was up to Aston Martin to make the call, and they bottled it. And, uh, well, it was not nice to see. Yeah, um, yeah. as you say, then being in that situation where your opposition has to blink first was also down to the fact that Max Verstappen was so kind to his medium compound tyres, taking them so far into the race that virtually negated any advantage that Alonso was looking to have by doing the overcut by starting on the hard tyre rather than Verstappen starting on the medium compound tyre. Um, and yeah, Max Verstappen did win by quite a sizable chunk in the end, meaning that neither of us went well in the how many seconds will Max Verstappen win by game. We were actually anticipating a closer race between Max Verstappen and his teammate, but as it transpires, Sergio Perez was not fighting up at the front, but instead scrapping to make it past Alpha Tauri's Alfa Romeo's and Lance Stroll towards the back of the grid. Um, simple question. Is any afterthought that Perez might be challenging for the title now completely extinguished? Yeah, it, it was. It Paul doesn't even cover Sergio Perez this weekend. Um, you know, especially you know we saw FP one. Uh, Alex Albon hit the wall at Sandovat, and um, we kind of thought, okay, so uh, you know, you know, they're, 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 the, the drivers are pushing it. You know, we are. It's a little bit different to a normal race weekend where. You know, drivers will push it, but they have that kind of margin for error. No, this is Monaco. It's why we kind of love it in a sort of way. And, um, well, uh, you know, Sergio Perez in Q1. Mate, you met, you met a crushing Q3. Like, this is this is what you're meant to do around Monaco. But, no, he thought he'd crush into Q in Q1. It's mad to think Sergio Perez has crashed twice in Q1 this season. Uh, kind of the same amount as his race wins. But um, Perez in the race, you know, okay, it's Monaco. Your target is points. That was a really poor drive. To, I mean, as you were saying, he was he was fighting at the back of the grid. He couldn't. He was struggling to get past 
a Haas, you know, or big, big news for Haas on their 150th Grand Prix weekend fighting with the Red Bull. But um, it, it was really poor by Sergio Perez. And, um, you know, Valtteri Bottas' title fights used to last a lot longer. At, at least we can say that. But, um, you know, you can't have these weekends. Perez is definitely looking back. And he's 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 a little bit sad now. I, I reckon he should be. Um, Fernando Alonso is closer to him than Perez is to Verstappen. Oh, by some distance as well. Perez is now 40 points off Max Verstappen. I mean, that is, is well over Verstappen now having a DNF. It is, is I mean, not, not good. And the thing is, with Max Verstappen, you never, ever see a weekend like this. You never see a weekend unravel so poorly. He was bad last year in Monaco, Max Verstappen. I think he'll accept that he was not at the top of his game. And he still finished on the podium in third. Um, having qualified fourth. He wasn't right at the top of his game, but he wasn't, you know, a million miles off. Perez was dreadful. Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong in the end. Um, and, you know, for that, that's um, that's disappointing uh, for, for Sergio Perez because he worked hard, but the, to no reward. Other drivers were having more success slicing through each other. There was actually, I mean, in the early parts of the race when we were counting up the overtakes because we thought this may be a rather pedestrian race, um, there, we, there were action for sort of P15. And you always see Perez in the background, but he was never kind of getting involved. And I don't know, maybe his desire to protect his car, perhaps with knowing the rain would come or whatever, maybe, maybe got a, a bit... A bit, a bit too much of him, um, and maybe took over his head too much, I guess. And uh, it's for that reason that he didn't, he didn't capitalise and didn't score any points at all, um, which is of course disappointing for him. And then the other big talking point coming into the weekend was the fact that Mercedes had essentially brought a B spec car, and from looking at it on paper, you'd see that they finished fourth and fifth, having had a bump. Um, does that reflect the true story? Do you think Mercedes have made either a step back in order to make a couple of steps forward or even, in fact, an initial step forward? Or will we have to go to Barcelona to actually find out? I'm going to be honest with you. I've got no clue where Mercedes are. Monaco is just so different. It's the, the, the characteristics of the track it is just so different. Um, and uh, if the only reason they first P4 and P5 was Ferrari um they, they they did what they did last year uh they 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 kind of they, they saw rain um they kept their driver out carlos signs stayed out on track then proceeded to slide his way into mirabeau uh onto the runoff area you know at, you know at least, at least when george george russell did the same thing he he crossed into Sergio Perez and received a five second time penalty for an unsafe rejoin but, guys, double stacking your cars in Monaco, it makes as much sense as, well, your thing that you did last year. Like, it was so, it was so typical. We could all see it coming. But, uh, you know, uh, that, that's our rant at the Ferrari strategist for this week done. But, uh, you know, Mercedes, uh, it, it was a brilliant fight back by George. To be honest with you, the, you know, the Mercedes strategists did the right stuff. They made the right calls. Um, Russell, of course, made that stupid thing by rejoining the track uh, not safely when it's Sergio Perez. Uh, but yeah, Lewis Hamilton was quietly efficient in P4, I think it's fair to say. He, he was he was always there. His 
fight back when uh, he 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 pitted uh, before everyone else did. He started in those medium compound tires. He pitted, forced Ferrari and Alpine to pit too because his pace was ridiculous on those new set. He was saying purple sectors, left, right, center, finished the race with the fastest lap. But, you know, it was a quietly efficient weekend for Lewis and. You know, whilst, of course, I don't think we've seen Mercedes' true colours with these upgrades, I think we should hopefully see it this weekend in Spain. Yeah, and look, I think they, they come into it, I think they have a little bit more optimism. I think the car perhaps isn't... I think what they're looking for with this upgrade is that the car is more predictable. Um, and I think it hopefully makes the setup window slightly bigger for them, means that they can actually adapt and uh, improvise and overcome, as the saying goes. And then the last man that we really, really need to speak about, who we have barely mentioned on this podcast yet, but did end up on the podium, is, of course, Esteban Ocon. Now, it's fair to say that Alpine haven't maximised every single chance they've had this season. I mean, the two drivers collecting each other and the final restarts in Australia, causing all kinds of mayhem at the back, um, of course, needs to be spoken about. And, um, you know... Can Alpine use this as a turning point to actually sort of go further and get more involved with fighting in the upper midfield and perhaps scraping into this Ferrari, Aston Martin and Mercedes battle? Because, yeah, they have, um, other than really Gasly sort of being towed along by Sainz in Australia, we've not really seen them mixing with the, mixing with the sort of the top four as, as it would be at the moment. Can they use this to kick on? Um, I mean, Ocon was so impressive in qualifying and, you know, ended up on the podium. How much can, further can they go with this? I mean, all of this kind of stemmed from qualifying. Like, you know, yes, we talked about uh, Sergio Perez getting, well, crashing in Sandovot in Q1. But Q3, the last three minutes was an absolute madness because, you know, you had uh, you had uh, Max Stappen on pole position uh, just ahead of Fernando Alonso. We see Esteban Ocon stick it on pole. Like, I don't know what we were watching. Uh, we then see, you know, the likes of Charles Leclerc went faster. Then we went to saw Fernando Alonso beat Charles Leclerc. And then we saw Max Stappen put in probably the best sectors of his career. Um, you know, uh, and then, of course, uh, Charles Leclerc's Monaco curse kind of continued. Uh, Three-place grid penalty for impeding Lando Norris was not... Like, it, it was kind of the last thing Charles Leclerc needed. But Esteban Ocon was... He, uh, he was a bit like Lewis. He was just quietly efficient. Um, It was it was a brilliant drive from Esteban. And, you know, whilst, yeah, this is Monaco, yes, it's hard to overtake. He was putting Fernando Alonso under a bit of pressure at the race start. Like, he, 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 was, he, he kind of stuck his nose kind of up, up the inside. Like, I, I think it was up the inside, at least. But... This is where we kind of see Esteban performing on the odd race weekend each year. Like, we all remember Hungary 2021. Um, he had some he had some brilliant drives in 2022. And, well, uh, this year, he's gone and got a podium. He's, he's gone, finished in P3 at Monaco, becoming, I think it's like the first French driver since 1996 to get a podium around Monaco. You know... I mean, and yeah, as you say, Alpine in the championship fight, they are they're, they're all P5. I think that their only competition at the moment is McLaren. Well, McLaren, they are fighting back quite nicely into this season. 
but they just don't have that edge that Alpine do at the moment. And the thing is, the gulf between Alpine and Ferrari, the only thing that's keeping that gulf kind of intact is the fact that Ferrari strategists love doing something stupid each weekend. But um, yeah, it, it was it was it was a brilliant drive by uh, Esteban, and you know Pierre Gasly finishing in P7, as as uh, you know as as Ted Kravitz was putting it, uh, Pierre Gasly was the meat in a tomato sandwich. So the, the the guy comes up with new lines each weekend. I think it's fair to say, and we love it. Well, yeah, he was trying to think of what bread is red, and so yeah, tomato bread for the Ferrari sandwich. Uh, um, and that was uh, and that was the story of Pierre Gasly's race. Um, you know, uh, overall, I think Monaco actually produced something relatively exciting this year in 2023, which we can we can we can appreciate. Um, and, and be glad for because uh, certainly you know 2021 was just 78 laps of, of of train processions but this year we had that little bit of excitement um not just sort of the opening lap and in anticipation of something going terribly wrong and Nico Hulkenberg tried his hardest to make sure something would go terribly wrong but uh in the end it was um it was a decent race then so if we just finish up our section on formula one this week you know we don't want to make this podcast three hours long because coming up next of course we'll be talking about the 107th running of the indianapolis 500 and well where do we start with that um in terms of barcelona we now go to a more traditional racetrack one where mercedes really showed their strength last year um, one where Ferrari's season began to unravel and Red Bull really took a firm grip on the championship. Can we expect one of the two, one of the three teams below Red Bull to upset the apple cart this weekend? Do we think this is the weekend where Mercedes, with their sort of front-loaded car, which works well around Barcelona and Silverstone, do you think they can take the fight or are we looking at another dominant Red Bull performance and the other team scrapping for that last place on the podium. I think Mercedes are still a huge unknown. I I, I, I don't really kind of know where they are. I don't think Mercedes know where they are, to be honest with you. Um, but, um, you know, you talk about Red Bull dominance. I think a driver who can definitely stop that, Fernando Alonso, he comes home, you know, Spain's been a track away, he's always done a madness, I still remember his lap in, I think it was 2017 in that McLaren Honda, gets it into Q3, brings tears to um, Martin Brundle's eyes, and then sticks it, I think it was P7 on the grid. Best of the rest. It was just, it was one of the best laps of that, that I can kind of remember that didn't get pole position. But, um, you know, Fernando Alonso definitely comes into this weekend with a spring in his step. The, the guy's got more points than Ferrari. Like, uh, just just put it put into perspective of how well Fernando Alonso's doing. But you know, as you say, uh Spain is one of those tracks, right, where the best team on the grid always performs. If you go, know I mean it's just it's just one of those tracks that you know, classic testing circuit that the circuit to Barcelona Catalonia is. You know, if you've got a good all round car, you will perform well. It's just how the circuit runs, unfortunately, and well as you said, this is a circuit Max Verstappen does quite like. Um, however, they have removed the final chicane. And I think we can all say thank you to the FIA and the Formula One organisers and everybody that's been part of this. Because we now may see overtakes at the Spanish Grand Prix because the most horrible, awkward, off-camber, painful 
terrible, useless, slow, unfortunate, whatever adjectives you want to talk about for that little left-right flick instead of the sweeper being the penultimate corner or corners in that sense has now gone which means the circuit should flow much better um, and actually minimum speed will be much higher. Um, the track actually looks like a racetrack again. Um, so, you know, that's all good news. And of course, the Spanish Grand Prix underway this weekend um, in another Formula One and IndyCar doubleheader with some Formula E, which we may get onto if we haven't gone onto tomorrow morning with how much we've got to record. So, IndyCar. 107th running of the Indianapolis 500 was awesome. We had 52 lead changes, 27 laps under caution, three red flags, the fourth closest finish in history at 0.0974 seconds. And as Connor Daly put it in the rewards banquet last night, the Borg Warner Trophy is changing up this time because uh, it won't just have Joseph Newgarden's face on it, but it's also going to have to have his abs because if anyone watched the first episode of 100 Days to Indy, they'll know that Joseph Newgarden likes to hit the gym. So it was Newgarden that out-dueled Ericsson in a hair-raising last lap. Um, Marcus Ericsson was essentially uh, essentially lost the race by 10 centimetres when he overtook Newgarden on lap 197 because it meant that he would start the restart first and he was literally ahead by something like 9 centimetres at the line. He um, So Ericsson um, would lead Newgarden into a final lap shootout and uh, Newgarden would blast past in the draft in turn three. But that doesn't tell the whole story. So if we rewind back as much as we like. Oh. I mean, the race started before then, of course, with Graham Rahal's battery uh, having a little malfunction before the race even got started, which was uh, <laughs> was pretty funny. Uh, the guy, of course, stepping into into Wilson's car, um, having, got, having been bumped last week. But, um, you know, McLaren, I was saying Zach Brown. Uh, he should have been watching the Indy 500 more than he who was watching uh, the Monaco Grand Prix. But uh, I, I think that was a bad call. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Zach. It, it was, it was, it was, it was a mistake. It was my mistake. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. I made you watch Pato Award um, make a um, a day late and a dollar short move on uh, Marcus Ericsson. <laughs> as, uh, as, as it was, it was James's words, not mine. Um, I do apologize, James. Uh, but <laughs> you know, you know, started with Rosenquist and uh, Kirkwood. What a crash that was! Like you know, again we kind of see uh, the error screen came into kind of it's it's full use. Um, you know, t- t- but the whole thing was a tire a tire went over the, the 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 kind of fence, hit a spectator's car. Thank God it didn't hit any spectators. But um, you know it it. it it, it it generally revealed the dangers around Indy if they weren't obvious enough already. But um, we talk about that split strategy. You know, fuel saving was a huge thing, especially with um, the fact we started the ra- the race with so much, so many green laps. We were shocked that there wasn't a caution until I think it was lap ninety one or ninety two. We didn't see a single caution until then. Um, and that, of course, meant that we had a little bit of split strategy with the fuel. Pato Award uh, being the lead runner who decided to um, make another pit stop. And that and that almost led him to winning the race. But, um, of course, he went and crashed in turn three. But, um, you know, a, a weekend, I think that McLaren will look back 
and that they, they, they'll be looking back on it a bit mournfully i think it's fair to say yeah actually you bring up some really interesting points that i think we need to sort of dissect them one by one i think the rosenquist kirkwood incident is massive and then the o ward tire strategy i mean just pato award in general um certainly one of the two odds on favorites um and then actually i think we sort of, what we should do is we should sort of go through the sort of the top grid order and the top runners and dissect where it went wrong because you know the winner came from 17th in in the field starting 17th and ericsson started 10th and he finished second and from there what we need to go through is you know where it went wrong for the favourites. The first favourite really to be out of the running was Scott Dixon. Uh, I threw you a bit of curveball starting with McLaren, but actually I kind of realised that we should really have started with all of the others. Um, Scott Dixon started the race with perhaps the worst sort of situation you want to find yourself in, where the left rear tyre is oscillating like crazy. They were literally talking about it on the broadcast that, oh, doesn't Scott Dixon's car look great? Two corners later. Oh, my word. How is this not in the wall? And I think it had it been any other driver put in the situation where your left rear tyre, I almost the tyre wasn't almost connected to the wheel rim is how the best way to describe it. And, you know, how Dixon didn't spin going, still averaging well over 200 miles an hour is insane. Um... And then the next sort of contenders that really dropped out were uh, Renus VK and, well, it looked like uh, Alex Pillow. Um How do we describe the uh, the pit incident between VK and Pillow? Um Not their finest hour, I think it's fair to say. Pit late. Pit road was a graveyard this weekend. It was... I, I don't know. Uh, every driver seemed to go into the pits and think, oh, yeah, this this is my turn to make a little error. It all started with Catherine Legg. In my, in my words, it was part two of, oh, Catherine. You know, it was it was really upsetting to see her just uh, have a little pit lane disaster on lap 30 that ultimately ended her race. But, um, you know, then, uh, you know, we have that first caution. And um, Renus uh, VK uh, trying to get his uh, the best exit on pit road possible just um, decides to spin his tyres up way too much. And if it may, if it couldn't get worse, he took out the guy who he was fighting with for the lead, Alex Pillow. What? How unlucky! If you're in Alex Pillow's like, if if you if you're in Alex Pillow's seat, in his shoes even, what? What would you be thinking at that point? You'd probably be thinking, I've 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 been leading. I've I've led like thirty six laps or whatever. I think it's thirty six laps of this Indy five hundred. Oh, I've got a I've got I've got a Dutchman crash into me. It, it, it's quite it, it's quite. I, I mean, as I said, it might not be the first time we see see a Dutchman crash into a Spaniard this year, but um, you know, it it, it was uh, it was disappointing. I don't think there's another word for it. Yeah, uh, I get what you mean. It was um, it was a clumsy move. And then the worst clumsiest move on pit lane was the two Andretti cars hitting each other. I mean, come on, guys. That was that Colton Herter was having such a strong race until until he was bumped. Oh, well, he until his he was he was sent out straight into the path of his teammate. Um, in the end, he came back to finish ninth, having had to serve, you know, um, pit contact penalty. And how could an inter-team pit road contact is dreadful. So that's Herta, Polo, seemingly, and um, 
VK out of the running. Alex Pillow actually finished fourth from 22nd on uh, after that caution, which is pretty spectacular and an awesome recovery. So the next sort of front runners that took themselves out were... Um, Felix Rosenquist, well, Roman Grosjean wasn't ever in contention, but he had another crash. Um, tough, tough uh, Roman. He was running a solid, if unspectacular, race. Um, yeah, just the car just essentially did what it did last year. Maybe it was affected a little bit by the contact with Herter on pit road. Um, that was what his strategist said, you know, why did when Grosjean was asking, oh, why did it suddenly feel different? I don't understand. But Rosenquist and Kirkwood... Kirkwood, um, sorry, Kirkwood was running such a strong race. I think in my pre-race notes, I, uh, I said that I wouldn't expect an Andretti car to outdrive a Ganassi or a McLaren over the course of 500 miles, and it was looking like I was about to eat my words as Carl Kirkwood carved his way to second, um, uh, by lap 140. Uh, I mean, he was driving so strongly. Um, Rosenquist then got passed by Newgard and got spooked a little bit, went up into the wall almost in the way that, um. Stingray Rob did in Texas. Uh, and in the same way that Stingray Rob speared back across the track, luckily was not connected by anyone. Rosenquist was collected by Kyle Kirkwood, sheared Kirkwood's left rear wheel off, as you already said, which went, you know, in over um over the catch fence towards the grandstand and hit a spectator's car. Um You know how we have we've introduced rear wheel tethers, so something like that didn't happen. It wasn't just the wheel that was sheared off. The tether was sheared off as well. It was a bit of chassis that broke. It wasn't actually the wheel tether that failed. Which, um, you know, 80 Gs uh, Kirkwood went into the wall at. And upside down, you know, we can only praise the aero screen for doing such a good job. I mean, the onboard footage of Kyle Kirkwood is frightening, isn't it? It was... Um, I mean, his visor flipped up. You could see him, you know. The, you could actually see the fear in his eyes as he's coming to a stop. But... Of course, big credit to the AMR safety team for rapidly turning it around. And with just 17 laps to go, I was 17, but then we did a few laps under caution before deciding actually we're going to red flag this just so we can get everything fixed and try and finish it under green. 17 uh, laps to go became nine. We had another restart. Do you want to talk us through what happened to that point? Uh, it was Pato Award leading Marcus Ericsson leading Joseph Newgarden at that point. It wouldn't stay like that for long. Um, talk us through it. Restarts produced a hell of a lot of action. Um, even though that's fine, Marcus Ericsson made one of the brilliant restarts, I'm sure uh, James would like to talk about that. But um, Newgarden was in P3 at the restart immediately went into P1 and into the lead as O-Ward uh, was overtaken by both Ericsson and Newgarden. So we had... <clears throat> the order was Newgarden, Ericsson, O-Ward. O-Ward, of course, on that split strategy, had some fresher tyres. Um, Slipstream behind Marcus Ericsson. And uh, we're going to turn three. And all hell breaks loose as uh, Pato Ward... Puts his puts his tire up the inside of Ericsson. Now this it, it definitely sent me a bit back to the Snappen Hamilton Silverstone 2021. It, it it definitely sent me back there. The only difference was it was the driver on the inside that crashed out instead of the driver on the outside. And you know I reckon if Pato wasn't so nice, you know he he was very annoyed 
uh, in afterwards. I don't know why he was annoyed at Marcus Erickson, mate. It was kind of your own fault. But um, he was very annoyed in the press conference and said he wouldn't be so nice. So th there is there is a war brewing between Pato Award and Marcus Erickson, I think. But, um, you know, Hill Award stuck his tar up the inside at turn three. And all hell broke loose as he spun around, hits the wall. Um, you know, it, it was it was just an absolute madness. Canapino then proceeds to have a crash with uh, with Simon Pagino, um, and we see a second red flag. I'm going to ask you, James, what were your views on that crash between Award and Ericsson? Um, well, it's actually not the first time we've seen these two come together at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Not just last year in 2022 in the thing, but in the IndyCar iRacing series that they did during the COVID lockdown. Oward pulled a similar move on Ericsson on the very final lap uh, in the short shoot into turn four. Uh, and um, as I saw this morning, um, they had a little war of words on Twitter about it. Um, the stakes weren't as high at that, that time. Um they were doing it from their comfort of their own homes, uh, even though it was, of course, broadcast and uh, Lee Diffie, Townsend Bell and Paul Tracy at the time, who was the colour commentator, um, you know, were, uh, were 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 doing that one. You know, we could we should have seen this coming. But um, actually, you talked about the restart on lap uh, whatever it was, lap 100 um, after the VK pit incident, uh, lap 103. That move from Ericsson to go from ninth round the outside of Rossi and Power and then round the outside of Newgarden and Power again into turn one, going from ninth to fifth was absolutely insane. That was some move. Um, I was I was shouting at my TV, don't do it for the second one because, um, you know, how much trust do you have in the sweepers that they've sweeped away all the marbles and you're actually going to have some grip up there? But, you know, it was some move. Um but yeah, onto the O'Ward Ericsson one. As you already said earlier, um, and actually as I tweeted straight away, as our colleague on Sky Sports F1, Martin Brunder, would say, O'Ward was a day late and a dollar short with that one. It it remind you said it reminded you of Silverstone. I would go even further back. It reminded me of a move that Sato pulled on Frankiti on the final lap of the 2012 Indy 500, right where Frankiti three quarter defended the inside. There might have just been up space. Kind of, Sato then went for it, spun himself, and nearly took Frankiti with him. And that's pretty much what happened. Pato Award would not have made the corner without either driving into Ericsson as he did by going, you know, going down the inside there. The move was pulled so late. The radius that he would have had to turn that corner flat meant he probably would have ended up in the wall at the short shoot. Uh, I think. I mean, he may have had the confidence, but I'm not sure the back end of the car would have stuck on the inside there, almost on the apron, um, on that inside curb. So, yeah, I think I think he was a day late and a dollar short with that. And um, there, Marcus Ericsson was feeling particularly fired up on Twitter the next uh, day. Um, uh, I think there was a picture tweeted of the move that O'Ward pulled on Dixon at Long Beach, which sent Dixon straight into the tyres, which was a very late, forceful move. And then the move that uh, O'Ward pulled on Ericsson, uh, the caption read something like, there are times when you make it out the corner and times where you don't. And um, yeah, Pato O'Ward uh, ended up in the wall with that one, meaning that we were essentially left with a two-car shootout with five laps to go. And... Marcus Ericsson took the lead at the stripe ahead of Joseph Newgarden and with Santino Ferrucci just behind. That was your top three. 
But in the end, there was a big crash at the back. Lungard, Ray Hall, um, Jack Harvey wasn't involved, but was definitely there. Marco Andretti um, all came together. And Benjamin Peterson as well, taking them all out the race. And uh, in the end, you know, Marcus Ericsson then was leading with two laps to go. Now, normally you need two warm-up laps in order to do it. And I thought, oh, this race is just going to finish under the caution flag like it did in 2020. And that would be that. But no, we had one more restart up our sleeve. And instead of doing two laps of warm-up, they essentially went straight out the pits. Instead of using the warm-up lane, they went straight onto the track. And uh, that was going to be a one-lap shootout. And from that moment, you kind of knew that if Newgarden got anything like a decent run off either turn four or turn two, he was going to be the one to beat. And um, yeah, props to Newgarden because he ran in the top 10 all day. He ran a faultless race. Um, I actually said also in my pre-race notes that when watching qualifying, you could see that the Penske's lacked the raw qualifying speed, but the cars looked the best handling wise. They were not fighting the car at all. He looked absolutely planted, just planted without very much speed. Um, but he had the speed when it counted. And, um, you know, for Joseph Newgarden not to win the Indy 500, you know, it would have been a massive shock um, for, you know, someone's career so established, um, such a brilliant driver. And so, you know, I'm, I, I as an Ericsson diehard fan, I wasn't, I, I felt disappointed initially. But, I mean, Newgarden's just such a likeable guy. That you know, if it was if it was anybody else, I'd be disappointed. But it's just Newgarden. I just couldn't feel you know upset. Um, you know, he's worked so hard. It's his twelfth Indianapolis five hundred. The only reason I'm actually upset is because Taron got triple points because of the member. If you remember from a podcast episode three or four weeks ago, right at the start of the month, we said lock in your Indy five hundred predictions, and Taron said Joseph Newgarden, and I said Alexander Rossi, and Taron now gets triple points for that. But I am awarding myself two points because. In my uh, pre-race notes, I wrote down a list of 33 and my predictions from 1st to 33rd. And in a moment of what can only be described as pure genius, I had Takuma Sato in 7th. But even more exquisitely than that was the fact that Felix Rosenquist, I predicted, to finish 27th. And Felix Rosenquist did indeed classify in 27th, having not made it to the finish line. Uh, I think we can call this... Um, a wonderful prediction. And so Taron takes the lead by just one point in the prediction standings. So he's, he's looking at me very, very smugly as uh, Joseph Newgarden won by 0.0974 seconds. Taron, how happy were you to see Newgarden cross the line as a winner? Not just for our predictions league, but also the fact that if there's one driver that really deserves it, it's Joseph Newgarden. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff comparing that Indy 500 finish to Abu Dhabi 2021. But this, this, this definitely had something different about it. Because whilst at Abu Dhabi, we're kind of, there, there was kind of the air of controversy kind of making all the victory a bit sour. It was pure happiness. Like, it was pure joy from, from, from everyone who was there. Everyone was just happy. Like, I know Marcus Erickson supporters, James included, were very upset. But um, you, everyone, everyone was just cheering. Like, we were just so happy because we respect good racing. And what did we see? We saw good racing. But, uh, you know, as James said, I did predict Joseph Newgarden was going to win uh, a few weeks ago. 
I also may have said something that if I get a single prediction right, I'm pouring milk over my head. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. Um, what's I haven't gonna... seen the video yet. Can you get? The, can you go on? Get yourself down to the local local shop and pick yourself up a pint of milk. Um, you quick um, quickly before I let you continue that. Um, you said that was the era of controversy. No rules were broken in IndyCar, where rules were very specifically and clearly broken in the uh, in the F1 in Abu Dhabi um, no rules were broken they can do that um, it's, it is in the written desire to finish a race under green and actually I was very surprised that there wasn't a pile up coming to the green uh, coming to the, the, the green and white flag um, people actually raced the, I mean they went four wide for ninth place but um, people actually raced very very fairly um, and it actually gave us a thrilling showdown between um, Newgarden and Ericsson. And Ericsson actually bolted off turn four, but that meant he was vulnerable down towards turn three. Um, last thing we want to talk about, two things in IndyCar. One, championship standings. But secondly, I think we're going to talk about the weaving. The weaving was rather extreme this year. And Joseph Newgarden nearly sent Marcus Ericsson into the pit wall was sort of 400 yards to go before the stripe um at what point does it get a bit silly do we at what point do we say you know come on can can we stop it ericsson did it quite badly last year um it, it was known as the dragon move and actually the uh, headline in the uh, indianapolis local newspaper the next day called joseph newgarden just the headline just said dragon slayer um which i thought was was quite cool um at what point do you know do we do we say the weaving that I I get weaving being you know in Formula One it's banned because Formula One loves to ser sterilize everything weaving I think is good breaking the draft means that people aren't sitting ducks on the straights but at what point does it get a little bit silly? Well, the point you're almost driving uh, a fellow competitor into the pit. I'm sorry, but Joseph Newgarden on that main straight when he was about to cross the line was stupid. You are. Okay, so you have you have the pit lane entry line. All right, it, it goes that you know the angle that uh, it, it does right, and you know I've I've I don't actually have an issue with people crossing it, but to cross it to such a level that you're almost driving into the pit wall itself, like you you know as as James said, uh, I've got no problem with weaving. All right, it, it, it is it's it's a strategy. A strategy that many people do to 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 uh, try and you know break a tie, break the advantage that another car has. But um, to do it to such a level where you're almost driving a fellow competitor into the pit lane, that's where we draw the line. I think it's fair to say. Um, we like seeing good racing. We like seeing close racing. But you know there are certain levels. I think they 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 should definitely probably make a rule that. You know, especially on the main street, such as Indianapolis, uh, you can only weave, like, especially over the pit lane entry line to a certain point. Like, I think, I don't, I'm not telling you to make another line, because then it would get a little bit confusing. But to a certain point, if you get what I mean, and I also think probably the way they finished the race, it could have been done a little bit better. Um, they, The, the one thing that Indy's a little bit different is kind of that they're not as trigger happy on the red flag as F1 is these days. You know, especially after the uh, Kirkwood uh, Rosenquist incident, I was expecting an immediate red flag because it, it it warranted that immediate red flag. And you know, who knows? Um, if we saw immediate red flag, we could have seen two laps instead of one lap of racing. And I think that would have been both safer 
and both it would have been more appropriate because you know i love a one-lap shootout we all love a one-lap shootout but it's t but, but uh, there, there are levels to one-lap shootouts if you get what i mean but um yeah 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 and i think i think i think you're right there with the with the extra um having the extra warm-up lap might have might have been safer they didn't throw the red flag immediately for the last one but you know we already had two red flags i, I mean i don't think everyone wants to see a green flag finish but at the same time you know i was sat there thinking you know at what point if we have another pile up and we finish the race under caution it's almost like well what was the point of the last one um almost you know too much um in the end it actually worked out pretty well um there was a dotted line on the pit lane they just didn't really enforce it um there was a dotted line but yeah i think they've really got to be a bit stricter with that because someone going into the attenuator would be would be would be a huge i mean we saw what happened in 2020 um there was a huge crash into the attenuator right at the end and actually that's why that race finished under caution with you know five or six laps to go um you know scott dixon was perhaps denied an indy 500 victory because he was sat in second and ready poised and rate waiting to pounce um, but such is the way of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, it decides who wins the race before the race even begins then. So if we get into the championship standings, Alex Pelot certainly saved his season by coming from 22nd up to uh, up to 4th after that pit lane incident. Ericsson is 2nd, uh, 20 points off because Pelot gets all of those points for pole position as well. Newgarden propels himself up to 3rd, Pato Award down to 4th. But still some way to go. Um, I think uh, Newgarden propelled himself up to third, yes? Or is he in fourth now? No, Award's still in third. He's on 185. Newgarden's uh, fourth, just three points behind. Okay, so it looks like it's those four um, sort of some, some some way, a little bit in the clear. Um, actually, yeah, you were right before Scott Dixon in fifth on 162. 57 points back from his Ganassi teammate. The big losers this weekend, McLaughlin, Grosjean, certainly. Um, they were the ones looking to have good results at Indy, and uh, in the end, it didn't go so well. So we go to Detroit then, next. Um what can we say for the uh, the new Detroit track? The pit lane looks rather exciting, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I've I haven't properly seen it, but um, as far as I can see, you know, I I was really excited. I was I was watching previous races. I was realizing how huge the tire difference was last year and how big strategy was. Uh, no, uh, it really watching last year's race was probably the last thing I should have done because we are at a completely well, I say completely different track. We are we are back to the old circuit. Um, I think was it last race in nineteen ninety one, I believe. But the one thing that I can say, I agree with Santino Frigi, it looks like Baku, but just a less, but a bit less smooth. Um, and you know, as you said, at the moment we have a Chip Ganassi racing one two in the championship. Um, you know, probably by no surprise at all, to be honest. I mean, Chip Ganassi have just been performing every weekend so far in IndyCar. Um, and you know, uh, well, I, I just, I just feel that seeing Scott Dixon so far behind, he's in P five, yes, but fifty seven points behind, I feel is quite uncharacteristic. Scott Dixon, almost, maybe not. I don't really know, but um, who knows? Um, he does need to win a race. I, I he, de he definitely needs a race win under his belt. Just, just something against his fellow teammates, because you know. 
He'll be saying Alex Plow, most consistent driver this season so far. Marcus Ericsson has always been there or thereabouts this season. And, you know, Pato Award has also kind of been the same. So, um, Scott Dixon definitely needs a race winner underneath uh, him. And uh, who knows? So does Andretti. Because the fact we don't have an Andretti driver, you know, in the top seven, you know, the first Andretti driver is uh, Roman Grosjean in P8. And Colton Herta is P10. From having such a good season last year, he sits in P10. I think, I mean, it's another case of what could have been for Andretti. They almost shot themselves in the foot. Poor Kyle Kirkwood was looking so good until he uh, ended up upside down. And uh, Andretti will be looking at as a missed opportunity as their 26 and 28 entries came into each other in the pit lane. So, lastly, and almost we've kind of... Um, we've put it back 50 minutes into the podcast, is that Formula E races around Jakarta and it's got some, I think, the biggest turning points um, because Jakarta's, you know, always produces drama. Um, it, it's quite a fun circuit. It looks like they've packed as many corners as they possibly can into the smallest area they possibly can um, with the track. Is the broadcasting changes in that Jack Nichols has stepped away and we don't really know what for what reason. He wasn't on BBC for the F1 either, so we hope it's nothing too serious. Um, maybe just a reshuffle. Vernon Kay has also left the Formula E broadcasting because he's now uh, presenting perhaps one of the biggest radio shows in the UK now daily. So, uh, you know, having every single commitment is um, is too much. Driver news, Ollie Rowland has left Mahindra. Um, do correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, and is replaced by Roberto Meri. Uh, and also David Beckman is replacing Andre Lotterer just for this doubleheader in Jakarta. Taron, as the expert, tell us more, Can um, you know, why they're doing this and sort of general thoughts ahead of this weekend as we sort of look to wrap up this episode. Because we've gone on really quite long. It's been a long podcast, has it? But we've had so much to speak about. And, uh, you know, we haven't even made any predictions. But um, who knows? Um, I think uh, Oli Rowland departing Mahindra, I, I don't actually know why the drivers have um, stepped out. I need to look into that a little bit more. But um, definitely, Roberto Mary, if you are a F1 fan, you will recognise that name as uh, that guy who drove for Manor back in 2016. Uh, 2015. Yeah, 2015. Sorry, brainwave. But um, yeah, for Jakarta double header, a bit different to last year. We only raced there once with uh, Mitch Evans winning that race ahead of uh, John Eric Firm. Because at the moment we have a Porsche versus Jaguar battle with Porsche struggling a lot and Jaguar powertrain cars, uh, kind of in the ascendance, if you like. Uh, Nick Casty being the man right now. He's on a bit of a run, back-to-back -back wins, um, and definitely following Monaco. Uh, leads uh, Pascal Verlein by 20 points in the championship. However, a driver who I do, I do think, um, a driver who will be looking to perform well is Mitch Evans. He's P4 in the championship, won at Jakarta last time out, has, has definitely seemed like a really strong driver, and I definitely think uh, an elusive race win is coming for him. Um and so, so so for his teammate Sam Bird. Sam Bird has just been he's 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 been he's been there, but he has the odd weekend where he just kind of crushes it into a wall or something like that. He just he, he has the odd race weekend, but you know, we then see Nick Cassidy's teammates, Sebastian Buemi. The guy who holds the record for the most Formula E pole positions, and well, um he, he he's he's just not performed well against his teammate. Points are scored. Well, and yeah, you get points for pole. 
but points are scored in a race. If you're not performing in a race, you're not going to be in a championship fight. And well, you know, as much as you can get pole positions, Sebastian Buemi, you need to perform well in a race, mate. But another team, Dias Penske, John Eric Van, as I said, was very good last year, finishing P2. Uh, his teammate Stoffel Van Dorn was in Mercedes back then. But, um, you know, we have a double header. I definitely think uh, double headers do certainly shake things up. Uh, we all know in Deria. Uh, Pascal Berline with that double, uh, with that with those back-to-back -back race wins in Deria. So um, yeah, we got a Porsche powertrain versus Jaguar powertrain battle with Porsche struggling a lot at the moment, and they will certainly Porsche will certainly look to get back in the fight with Jaguar very soon indeed. But that so that's Jakarta summed up in less than four minutes. Thank you very much. Um, lots to look out for then. So you did. I uh, completely forgot about predictions. Um, uh, I'm assuming you're going to say that Nick Cassidy is going to come away from Jakarta with the lead of the championship after you have done for the sort of the last three Formula E rounds. Um, he is actually, of course, leading the championship now. So you know, Taron, a decent result, and uh, your predictions will forever come true. Um, so in the uh, ha we'll do we'll do we'll combine F1 IndyCar just to finish then. Um, in the how many seconds will Max Verstappen win the Spanish Grand Prix by? I can only see this going one way, and I can only see him beating Perez by a significant margin, probably twelve or thirteen seconds. Very reminiscent of Hamilton ahead of Bottas. Um, that kind of night, Perez being a couple of tenths a lap off, just because you know Verstappen is Verstappen in the same way Hamilton was Hamilton. So I'm going to say twelve seconds. Uh, and then for my IndyCar pole position around Detroit, new circuit, um, sort of in the unknown, but someone who's going to have a bit of fire in his belly, um, if his interviews are anything to say about, is Pato O'Ward. He's going to take my pole position. And then race win, I think Scott Dixon will win. I think the track that looks most similar to this Detroit track in IndyCar is Toronto. And who won in Toronto? Scott Dixon did last year, so... It's going to be Dixon for me to take the race win in Detroit. And then my surprise of the weekend is going to be that Renus VK will finish in the top 10. I, re I mean, he's just had such a such a clumsy start to the season. Even when it was looking so good at Indianapolis, it still went wrong for him. So that's my predictions. Darren, over to you. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the F1, right? And I I, I actually think, I don't think Sergio Perez is going to finish second. I'm going to put my money on Fernando Alonso finishing second. Um, I do think Max Stappen is going to win. Probably by a bit of a less margin, I'm going to give him a cool eight seconds ahead of Fernando Alonso in second. But, um, you know, move on to the IndyCar. James puts Scott Dixon for the win. I say Scott Dixon gets pole. And I say the Andretti man, Colton Herta wins out in Detroit. Um, my surprise of the weekend, the thing is that, I I, I mean, I'd, I'd love to say, you know, McLaren, no, McLaren's in the top five. Already done that. It went horribly. Uh, we then said no Chip Ganassi's in the top five. James did that. Um, almost happened. Um, and as much as I'd love to say no Andretti in the top five, I've put an Andretti to win the race. So, um, you know what? I'm going to say David Malukas finishes in the top 10. And lovely, lovely, lovely. Um, little Dave recovering from... He Apparently he had contact, but I couldn't find anywhere where the contact was for David Malukas. Maybe it was on pit lane? I can't remember, but Malukas actually did not finish in the end. Um, 
you know, a disappointing day for Dale Coyne as both their cars didn't see the checkered flag. But that's all we've got time for. Um, uh, all we've got time for. We've used a lot of time for this one. Um, the greatest spectacle in racing, plus the drool in the Formula One crown, all happening on the same day, means that we've had a lot, a lot, a lot to talk about. Um, we've got three series to review next weekend, but perhaps the stakes are slightly less high, meaning that uh, it won't be such a long podcast. But yeah, we hope you've stuck around until the end, because we had a good time, so we hope you did too. Um, and uh, remember, you can catch all of our content on our website, singleseaterspace.co.uk, um, and, of course, on social media using the at Space. and we will see you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>